Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Leading the news among evangelical Christians this morning, um, and frankly, leading the news, I warned you of this yesterday, uh, of those who take joy in finding fault with evangelical Christianity, uh, is the story out of Liberty University. Jerry Falwell Jr. has formally indicated to the Wall Street Journal that he is resigning from the office of president of the university that his father founded. Um, I know that there was some back and forth yesterday. There was a, a news report that he had resigned, and then... Um, he rejected that uh, report. Well, the Wall Street Journal is reporting that he has communicated directly with them uh, that, in fact, he uh, is resigning. I don't know that that resignation has taken place, but that he is resigning um, from the office of the president uh, of Liberty University. This comes uh, the same day, or a little you know, late in the same day, uh, after the revelation of a years-long sexual relationship involving um, the Falwells and a, a person who's described as a business partner. Let me just say this. The storyline is salacious. Um, things were done and things are alleged to have been done that ought never be done by those who profess the name of Jesus Christ. And so today... As I encouraged us yesterday, let us be praying for Jerry Falwell Jr. Let us be praying for his wife, Becky. Let us be praying for the other man at the center of this story. Let us be praying for the students, the alumni, the faculty, the staff, the administration of Liberty University. Um, And I'm going to lift up one person in particular this morning. Well, we should lift up Linda Mental. She's a colleague of ours. We talk with her on a regular basis. She's a faculty member at Liberty Um, And I've got uh, a friend and a former colleague who serves at Liberty as the senior vice president of university communications. You can only imagine how hard his job is right now and has been um, for the last several days, weeks, months and years. Um, His name's Scott Lamb. So as you have occasion today to lift up this entire situation before the Lord, I'd ask you um, as a personal just on a personal note, lift up my friend Scott uh, and others who are now dealing with um, this very, very difficult uh, public relations situation, but maybe more importantly, this very, very difficult situation in terms of the ongoing witness of Liberty University. We we need this university to be, you know, to be successful and to be, um, you know, I say that in uh, in recognition that Christian higher education is under fire from lots of directions, and we need not be shooting ourselves from within. So uh, let this be a a matter of uh, concerted prayer, uh, and we look forward to the way God um, intends to redeem even this, even this. All right, we're going to turn our attention next with Mark Caleb Smith of Cedarville University to some reflections on day one of the Republican National Convention being held Uh, both in Charlotte, North Carolina, and remotely, kind of all over the place, including today, from Jerusalem. 
So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. Hey, welcome back. Hey, Carmen. How you doing? I am, I am well. It is well with my soul. And you? Uh, it's going pretty well. I mean, we're starting our second week of classes. Um, we're still in face-to-face mode. Uh, we've only had one positive test. And so I think on the whole, we're, uh, we're doing quite well. That's so good. You have some of my people there. So I uh, appreciate the work you're doing. Um. All right, let's talk about uh, a few reflections on day one of the RNC convention. We spent some time last week reflecting day-to-day on what was happening um, among the Dems. So we're going to spend some time this week reflecting each day on what is happening at the RNC. What stood out to you, Mark? Well, I mean, the convention for an incumbent like President Trump is really a chance to sort of unveil your strategy And for us to get a look at how the campaign sees itself sort of unfolding here over the next couple of months. And as an incumbent, sort of the traditional approach has been uh, to argue, you know, are you better off now than you were four years ago? Uh, Let's look at our accomplishments. Let's look at what we've done well. And we want to give you all the reasons that we can uh, to support us in November. And I think you saw elements of that today or yesterday. I think you're going to see more of that over the next few days. Uh, But you also saw some pretty pointed and spirited attacks against the Democrats. Uh, There were some really hard contrasts drawn, especially in uh, Donald Trump Jr.'s speech. Um, And so you're sort of watching. It's interesting, I think, to see how the president's going to proceed on this. Um, Will it be a real focused, coherent strategy? Is it going to be a little bit of picking and choosing? And it was interesting to watch. I think there's some really powerful speeches by Tim Scott, Nikki Haley in particular. So my uh, my three were Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, and Herschel Walker. Yeah. Now maybe that's just because I'm an SEC person, but uh, I got to tell you, um, I really appreciated the personal nature of his speech and um, and just I yeah I thought those three were very redemptive. I thought those three speeches had a redemptive quality to them. Well, and I think just at a very practical political level, uh, it's smart for the Republicans to highlight diversity where they can. Uh, you know, right now their strength as a party, their constituents are overwhelmingly white Americans, and the more that they can uh, sell themselves as open to and and welcoming of a diverse group of people, I think it's better for them politically. And I think all three of those speeches help do that. Um, and if you notice, those speeches tended to be more positive. They tended to be biographical. Uh, they tended to be inclusive in a way. Uh, and I think that's the better that's the better path forward for the Republican Party. Uh, and we'll see whether that party, whether they can really embrace that over the next several days. Yeah, I think that's the plan. That seems to be the plan. So uh, so we'll see. All right. Um, let's talk a little bit about what's happening down ballot. Um, there is there there are races happening beyond the presidential race. Um, what do you see there as important? Well, there's there's a lot going on. Uh, we do tend to focus ex- almost exclusively sometimes on the presidential election uh, it kind of sucks all the oxygen out of everything else that's taking place because it's so important. Uh, but we have a lot of Senate campaigns taking place right now. We have 35 seats up, sort of an unusual year because uh, of some retirements and resignations. Uh, we also have, of course, all the members of the U.S. House running for re-election uh, coming up in November as well. And so those two chambers are up for grabs. 
Um, and I think in particular, the Senate uh, could really go either direction. And the Senate, maybe as much as the presidency, will dictate the next four years. I mean, if you end up with divided government, regardless of who's in the White House, uh, we know we're going to see more uh, you know, difficulties and obstacles in some ways. If you end up with a unified government, either for Republicans or Democrats, where they can control all of Congress and the White House, it's going to be a very different matter politically. And so uh, people really need to start investigating those Senate races uh, in particular. There's some really hot ones in places like uh, North Carolina, um, Georgia, uh, Iowa, Maine. I mean, they're sort of dotted all over the country, and they really could go either way. All right. And then um, I want to talk a little bit about election security. Um, we're, I mean, I don't know about you, but my inbox is flooded with, you know, sort of warnings about the way that uh, that others are seeking to interfere in the election. But I think that the election security conversation for most Americans centers around the post office. Yeah, I think that it does. And I'm not sure that that's necessarily the right place for us to center, honestly. I think um, – both parties are sort of using the post office right now as a little bit of a political football. Um, and I think on the whole, you know, the post postal service does a good job. They deliver hundreds of millions of pieces of mail on a regular basis. And so we, if we end up with a massive increase in mail in voting in November, I really don't think it's going to be, if there are issues, it's not going to be the post office's fault. I'll just put it like that. Um, yeah, there may be blips here and there, uh, but I think really you're looking at delays more in the counting of ballots and those kinds of things more than you'd be looking at um, postal service mishandling. It kind of feels like both parties are using it to try to justify whatever happens. So if, if things don't go well for the Republicans, they're going to try to point some blame to the post office and look for corruption. If things go, don't go well for the Democrats, they may end up doing quite the same thing. So, you know, we had all these ballots. Where are they and what's going on? Um, so if I, were the, if I were the postal service, I'd want to make sure – this is as clean as a process as it can get coming up over the next couple of months, so you can avoid that kind of scrutiny. Um, you know, I think interestingly, at least to me, uh, the postal service is one of the most popular parts of our federal government. You know, when you ask people about their approval of different pieces of the government, postal service gets very high rankings uh, from American citizens, much higher than the president, and much much higher than Congress. So it is actually the one place, the one touch point that the federal government potentially has every single day with every single American because that person is driving that route or walking that route. And yeah, so, no doubt. I mean, you know, when I when I think about the interaction that I have with federal employees, the most frequent interaction I have is with the Postal Service. No question about it. Yeah. And, and generally, they're positive interactions with people oh, who are personable. Yeah, who are personable and who do, who, who do good work. And, you know, yeah, we can always make jokes and say, well, you know, I didn't get this until several days after I was supposed to or whatever. But, uh, you know, as the Postal Service tweeted the other day, uh, if every American casts a ballot this November, uh, then the 300 plus million ballots would be a fraction of what they deliver on a daily basis. I mean, they're used to this kind of volume. Uh, this is nothing compared to Christmas cards or anything else they deal with. And so, I'm really not worried. Maybe I'm the naive one, but I'm really not worried about this. All right. I'm going to shout out to all the postal employees uh, who work at post office in zip codes 37143, 37082, and 37068, because those are the three post offices that I go to on a very regular basis, and I rely on them. So I'm thankful for them. There you go. So give a little shout out to your, uh, your postal service zip code uh, today while we take a very brief break. More with Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University up next. We'll be right back.
Mark Caleb Smith is a political science professor at Cedarville University. Uh, we love talking with him about all things at the intersection of politics and faith. He is back with us this morning. Um, let's talk a little bit about the designation of teachers as essential workers in a push to reopen schools. Um, talk talk with us about what's happening here. Well, I mean, as, as you know, and we've talked about quite a bit over the past uh, several months, I mean, the pandemic has really grown into a massive political issue. And in some ways that's unfortunate, I guess. In some ways it's kind of unavoidable. Um, but the latest line of confrontation seems to be uh, the federal government's desire to see schools open across the country. And I think if you put it kindly, I mean, some teachers and their hesitation uh, to embrace that. Um, what's happened recently is uh, the Department of Homeland Security has issued guidelines uh, that have declared teachers essential workers, which basically means um, they're able to go to work even if they've been around someone who's a confirmed COVID-19 case uh, without quarantining. So as long as they're asymptomatic, they could continue to work even though they've been exposed. Um, now, that's not a mandate. You know, the Homeland Security can't force teachers to do this. They can't force local school districts to do these things. But it is a guideline which suggests the direction the federal government would like to see this go. And as you as you would expect, um, teachers organizations, the American Federation of Teachers, the National Education Association, uh, they've come out against these kinds of guidelines. They made it very clear uh, that they don't think that's the proper designation for teachers. And they continue to argue they haven't been properly resourced to deal with COVID-19. Um, and so, again, you know, we said before the Postal Service has become a political football right now. Teachers and reopening our schools is a political football as well. Hmm. All right. So um, can we return um, to the topic that we started on? Sure. Which was OK, which was speeches, because. I yep. really I, I kind of had an expectation that you were going to have your almost your Georgia attire on today to talk about Herschel Walker's <laughs> speech. I mean, like, aren't you a UGA grad? Like, I was a little disappointed. There wasn't a little more rah-rah at the outset of this conversation. Uh, I am a university, a very proud University of Georgia graduate, two degrees from UGA. So I am a bulldog uh, through and through until the day I die. No question about that. And Herschel Walker maintains a very special place in the heart of every Georgia Bulldog. Um, but it's also my job, Carmen, to be objective and to be an analyst. <laughs> and so I need to try to be careful that I don't, uh, that I don't tip my hat too much toward a fellow Bulldog. But yeah, I mean, I love Herschel Walker and he's a great spokesperson for the university, uh, as well as I think a very effective spokesman for President Trump. Uh, I think it's really smart to bring people like Herschel Walker into the discussion. Uh, he speaks plainly. He speaks clearly to people. He has a compelling story. Um, and of course, he's he's a great athletic figure from the past. And so it's it's good politics. Uh, it's good politics all the way around. I, I learned things. I mean, maybe those of you who went to Georgia know all of this about Herschel Walker. But um, but I mean, I definitely learned things. I mean, his speech was brief, but, you know, I I certainly didn't know he has a 37 year history with the president. I certainly didn't know. I mean, they're real friends in real yeah. life. Um, I loved, uh, you know, sort of his defense of the president's style by saying, you know, I mean, you know, when when you're on the field of play, like running guys over like that is that is what you do to advance, you know. To advance your cause, so I mean, I just um, I I did think it was very down to earth. It was very straightforward, um, and maybe maybe I liked it because I'm also an SEC person, you know, at heart. So, 
Yeah, even though I not, not a bulldog, not a bulldog. Um, okay, well, um, and then let's let's revisit Tim Scott's speech uh, yes. briefly for people who missed it. Um, this is actually one of those I would encourage them to go and track down today. I mean, to actually like type it into your search bar, um, Tim Scott's speech RNC, um, and and watch it. Why would I be encouraging people to do that? Well, I th- just at a very practical level, uh, sometimes at a convention, you see someone give a speech and you think, you know what, that person has a future in the party. Um, and it might be weird to say that about Tim Scott, who's a sitting United States senator, that it has a future. Uh, but that would mean like as a presidential candidate, someone on the national stage who could potentially be a major figure within the party. Um, and I think that speech last night maybe propels him in that direction. Um, his most compelling I think insights of his biography. He talked about his own background, his family's background, um, struggles at different levels in their family. And the most memorable line of the speech, I think, when he says that his family in one lifetime went from cotton to Congress. And that's a remarkable statement to make. Um, and it's, I think it's compelling, especially given the days that we're living in right now and the racial strife that we're seeing. Um, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it was a compelling speech. Um, if you looked at it politically in terms of what he talked about in terms of issues, it was pretty traditional conservative republicanism. Uh, it wasn't nearly as sort of um, populist as President Trump might be. It was sort of more in the Reagan wing of the Republican Party, uh, which I think is shrewd from Scott. It's also um, good politics for his future. I appreciated how he addressed the partisan nature of things that um, we all recognize the need to be working on. Let's say police reform as an example. Um, you know, he talks about the Democrats walking out of the room during negotiations because they wanted the issue more than they wanted a solution. I think to hear that from a policymaker who's working on the Hill and who is really working on the Hill, um, I think those kinds of things give Americans uh, an insight into how frustrating it is uh, to be a member uh, of the Senate or of the House, who genuinely is working on bipartisan solutions, but when the other, when the other party literally is more interested in the issue than they are in finding uh, a bipartisan solution, I just felt like there were some things that he said in addition to the biographical content, which was excellent. Um, I, I with you feel like um, you know we were, you know we were potentially watching a future president there give a speech at the RNC uh, twenty twenty last night. So just uh, really appreciated what Tim Scott had to say. People who listen to the show regularly know he's one of my personal favorites. So, um, all right, uh, Dr. Mark Caleb Smith, we got to leave it right there. Have a great day teaching the people. Thanks, Carmen. You too. Thanks to you and all your listeners. You guys take care. You too. We'll be right back. All right. I like to uh, talk about journalists and what they write and how they write, what they choose to write about. So I also think it's prudent to talk with journalists. Sarah Eikhoff. Zylstra is a senior writer and on Faith and Work. She's the Faith and Work editor for the Gospel Coalition. She writes for Christianity Today. She has homeschooled her children. She freelances for her local paper. She has taught at Trinity Christian College. Sarah Zystrel is up next with two stories currently posted at thegospelcoalition.org from the Twin Cities and one from Cedar Rapids, Iowa. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen.
right. So um, if, well, first of all, if there had been radio in 79 AD, and if we had been on the radio in 79 AD on this day, on August the 25th, 79 AD, we would absolutely be leading with a story um, out of Italy, uh, the eruption of Mount Vesuvius on August the 24th in 79 AD. It destroyed several Roman cities, maybe the most famous of which is Pompeii. Uh, it, it, it decimated every settlement in between those, um, those four cities. The eruption ejected a cloud of stones and ashes and volcanic gas, the height of 21 miles into the atmosphere. Uh, molten rock, pulverized pumice uh, came forth at a rate of 6 times 10 to the 5th cubic meters per second. Let's just say that is 100,000 times the thermal energy released by the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings. More than 1,000 people died in the eruption, but actually exact numbers are completely unknown. There were two surviving eyewitness accounts of the event, uh, a letter by Pliny the Younger and then the historian Tacitus. Why do I bring that up? Because the things that we talk about um, day to day, sometimes we imagine nothing like this has ever happened before in all of the course of human history. Um, no, things like this have often happened before and, and actually at far more significant um, rates or depths or magnitude than are happening now. So I know that today, let's say when we talk about the coronavirus, sometimes we have a hard time getting perspective on that. It's not like the plague, uh, the Spanish flu that um, that decimated the global population in the early 1900s. And there were plagues, if you you know read the Bible, um, that decimated other places at other points in history far, far more catastrophic than what we're experiencing right now. So historical perspective is important. That's one of the things that we try to do here. We're also trying to bring the Christian worldview to bear. We're trying to uh, share with one another how the church is responding and how God is working out, uh, you know, his own will in the course of redemptive history. If you've ever wondered, what is it that Carmen's doing every day? That's what Carmen's trying to do every day. You are a part of it because this is listener-supported radio. And so in a couple of weeks, we're going to come to you in what we call fall share. Uh, We only do it a couple of times a year. We come to you as listeners, and we say, uh, you are a part of this ministry. And not only asking the question, have you benefited from it, but would you like it to see it extended to more and more people? Would you like to see it extended to more and more places? Would you like to see what we're doing here extended in terms of the conversation that's happening in the culture? Well, we have to have your help to enable us to do that. So that's what we do during Fall Share. It's coming up in a a couple of weeks. I would invite you to be prayerfully considering now how God might be leading you to make a gift. Um, It might be a one-time gift. It might be an ongoing gift. The people who support Faith Radio um, in an ongoing manner every single month, let's say at the $40 a month uh, level, um, we really count on that. It's a little bit like knowing that every month you're going to get a paycheck of some kind. Um, It's a way for us at Faith Radio to know there's going to be this ongoing listener support. It helps us budget and it helps us look into the future to see what opportunities we might take advantage of as a ministry. So. Faith Radio, you can find us at MyFaithRadio.com if you want to donate today. There's always a Donate Now button available. But if you'd like to wait and participate in Fall Share, that's kind of fun, too, because we love to hear from you during that special uh, special time. So, Fall Share coming up soon. It's like a forecast of a volcano, but not quite. All right, let the impact be great. We'll be right back. Ever had a warning light come up on your dashboard? Hey, when the radiator's boiling, it's time to pull over. 
Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Just as you would pay attention to and act on a warning in your car, we need to pay attention to the warning light in relationships. When a teen is boiling over with anger, that should be a flashing light on our control panel. Ignoring the simmering tempers will simply make the situation worse. In fact, it has the potential to put up walls in a relationship, and ignoring the signals opens the door for issues to get out of hand. So when anger bubbles up inside your home, don't disengage from your team. Now's the time to pay attention to the warning light. Want more parenting help from Mark Gregston? Find helpful resources at parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. measure upon journalists who are out there on the forefront telling us the stories of what in the world is happening in the world. Sarah Ekoff Zalstra is one of those. Um, she serves as a senior writer and faith and work editor for the Gospel Coalition. Before that, she wrote for Christianity Today. Um, we could talk about homeschooling today, but we might not. She has freelanced for her local paper and taught at Trinity Christian College, on and on and on and on. Sarah, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you for joining us. You've got a couple of stories posted right now at thegospelcoalition.org that I just love to talk with you about. These are actually, you know, stories that are taking place in some of our live broadcast areas. So even though we have p- people listening all over the place in the Faith Radio app and streaming online, um, we actually have people in the Twin Cities and we have people in Iowa listening live right now. And that's where these two stories that you have posted Um, emanate from. So talk with us a little bit about the riots in John Piper's neighborhood. First of all, that's a pretty provocative headline. (laughs) It is. Um, And the surprising part isn't the riots, because um, John Piper lives in Minneapolis, um, just three miles from where George Floyd was killed. So you've probably already heard about the riots. Um, They've been happening happening pretty consistently since, um, since that day. But the surprising part for us is that John Piper lives there. So George Floyd was killed just just on the south edge of a pretty under-resourced neighborhood in Minneapolis, I would say maybe like a high-poverty area. Um, and that is a place where John Piper has been living since 1980, so for 40 years, when he first took the pastorate at Bethlehem Baptist Church. Um, the church was downtown, and he moved there to be close to the church. Um, and has lived there ever since and has invited his congregation um, to come and live there with him. So this is a time, Carmen, before cities were cool, before it was um, kind of hip to live in the city. This is back when when things probably looked worse even than they do today in terms of crime and poverty. Um, and he um, just bought a house there and lived there. And the people who came to live with him also invested in the neighborhood. Um, so they started a school and they started churches and they started social services um, and prayed for the people and lived, you know, next door neighbors to the people, um, held black parties and invited people for barbecues and said hi and talked on the street and have been living basically as salt and light in this neighborhood for the past four decades. So it strikes me, um, first of all, the the church had been uh, in the neighborhood for 111 years when when Piper uh, moved into the neighborhood. Um, He makes the observation Mm -hmm. the city needs churches. We Mm -hmm. shouldn't abandon Mm -hmm. neighborhoods for economic reasons. 
Um, and and so it's not just about the church being present. It's about the church literally moving into the neighborhood. There's a I mean, that's one of the things that jumps out to me in your in your piece is this um, this reality that presence matters for Christians who are listening. They're going to hear the incarnation of Jesus in all of that. Is that one of, uh, you know, sort of one of the themes or takeaways that you kind of experienced in your conversation with John? Yes. And I think also like it's sort of an interesting point. By the time he got there, there were some people who were living in the neighborhood, but many had moved out already. And so you have a church that's a little bit split, which is how white flight happened everywhere. You'd have your church and then the people had moved. So then you're you're looking at a choice, like, do we move the church to be by the people, which is incarnational, or do we move the people to be by the church, also incarnational? So, yeah. um, you know, he's looking at his neighborhood around him saying, you know, and at the south side of Minneapolis saying, hey, we barely have any churches here in the city. We can't leave. Come back toward the city, um, which was super countercultural a little bit today, although you see it more often, people moving into under-resourced neighborhoods to help. Um, but back then, it was the opposite direction everybody else was moving. And sometimes right, and, didn't make sense. Oh, sorry. Well, so also sorry, in just, your piece— no, you're good. Also in your piece, you um, you you lift up not just John Piper, but John Erickson. Now, I'll just admit to you, John Erickson is not, you know, a name that I immediately recognized in reading this piece. Um, but you describe him as um, the son of, uh, of a pastor who lives across the street from Piper. Um, talk with us about this part of the story, because this is sort of how this is kind of next gen in terms of the conversation. <laughs> yes. Um, So John Erickson's parents read John Perkins. I don't know if you're familiar with his work, but he's very much, yes. So he's very much like moved to the broken places. Um, And they did in 1982. And so he grew up there. He has all kinds of memories of what it was like to, you know, he told me a story about um, a a kid next door um, killed himself with a a shotgun. Um, The police came and did stuff, but he was the one in the end that ended up hosing off the sidewalk from the kid's blood. Like this is just the, the place where he was, um, and then moved back there, um, and worked for, um, met John Piper and, um, worked for Bethlehem for 10 years and then planted a couple of churches and still pastors the one that's called Jubilee. Um, it's got about 175 people and it's just dug right in there into that neighborhood. Um, and just, you know, calls as many, uh, people as he can to come and worship and to invest um, and out of their basement runs Jericho Road, which is um, where they have a food shelf, um, and they help with uh, people getting state IDs or finding work. Yeah, I just loved how many positive um, positive stories you were able to note in you know in what is a fairly brief mm-hmm. piece and a brief read. So um, again, I want to highlight for folks it's at thegospelcoalition.org. The article. Uh, is got a provocative title and is not hard to find. Riots in John Piper's neighborhood. The author is Sarah Ekoff Zalstra, and she and I are going to continue our conversation in just a minute. We're going to pivot to another story she has posted. Iowa churches dig out of windstorm devastation. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. We talked uh, just last week with uh, Tracy, Tracy Berta, who lives in Cedar Rapids and described for us her experience of the derecho. She also talked with us about how we can support churches and those in the community there who are uh, continuing to suffer. 
I have with me right now um, uh, Sarah Ekoff Zalstra. She is uh, a senior writer at the Gospel Coalition. She has a piece posted that I really commend to everybody, Iowa Churches Dig Out of Windstorm Devastation. Sarah, uh, I just appreciate how you um, how you bring the stories of people to life and um, and how you are able to take us into their experience. And you get there really fast. Like you get there in the second paragraph, which is like, you know, two sentences in Um, that's um, that's like so part of telling a good story is getting me hooked early on. Like, I want to know what happens to Mo. I'm only two sentences in, and I want to know what happens to Mo, right? Um, yeah. And, and, and I also, man, my heart nearly, like, leaves my chest when I'm, I'm hearing Mo's experience, this kid doing what his dad sends him out to do, and then, you know, he's flattened by these 100-mile-per-hour winds crossing across his yard. I just, I, take, us, take us into your experience of covering this story. Um, I, I loved cover. This story made me want to move to Cedar Rapids and I, mm-hmm. it almost made me feel like I'm sad I missed it because it seemed like such an amazing, but it was a terrifying thing to live through. But then afterwards the people pulling together seemed it's amazing. Um, so I, um, I'm from Iowa and, and I'm interested in all things Iowa. And so I love to tell this story. I just called, um, a bunch of pastors that we knew there, um, and asked, what their experience was. And they probably were a lot like Tracy's, like they could see, um, see, they could kind of see it coming, it, but it felt like it came fast. Um, and they, um, a lot, a lot of them were able to find some shelter. I like, um, so one pastor I talked to named Jake each, I lead with him, just kept working till the power went out, which is, um, very typical of a place where they have a lot of storms and you don't immediately run to the basement, but first try and finish what you're working on. Um, and he tells his 17 year old run out, Hey, run out to the, to the camp, to the fire pit and grab those camping chairs and put them away. Cause I don't want the thunderstorms to take, to blow them away. So the kid Mo does, um, except for on his way back, a tree uproots behind him and, and blows across the yard. And then the neighbor's pool flies over his head. And eventually he ends up just knocked flat on the ground. So he's got a, a story he's going to be telling for quite a while. Yeah, no doubt about it. But uh, this is really also then a story about um, already about recovery. So what Mm -hmm. um, give people a little insight into what's happening, um, you know, not just through the efforts of church people, but certainly that's what's what's leading in this story. Mm -hmm. So I think the first couple first day or so was just kind of get reoriented like they, you know, one pastor told me he walked outside and, you know, just went and got his chainsaw. Um, and just started working away because the main thing that happened was Cedar Rapids, which is full of trees, famous for trees, half of them um, were destroyed. So these are trees laying on your roof, laying on your car. Um, one pastor told me about there was a, a neighbor who lived across the street who was in his car in his driveway trying to get into the garage, but the garage door didn't go all the way up because the electricity cut out. And then a tree fell on his car. He was fine. But so the first thing he did was like go over and get a chainsaw and help that guy get the tree off of his car. Their their streets were full of trees, too. Like they couldn't get out um, to go check on anybody. And they also couldn't call because all their cell towers were down. So what you would do is drive. These pastors would drive outside the city till they got a cell phone signal and then text or, or email their congregation or call their congregation and try and get a hold of them. But those people also would have to drive outside of town to get a signal to respond. Um, but also, there the stories we we've heard that I heard were amazing. Of their um, they're out there with their neighbors, they're on the roofs with their neighbors. Um, the church is helping it. 
the members of the church, they're, they're digging people out of their houses, they're serving meals, um, they're delivering water, um, all the ways that you can think of that you would, would be serving your neighborhood, which is amazing because if a tree is on your own house, um, it's, the, it's a matter of getting that off, but also maybe even before that, turning to help your neighbor, which is a, a beautiful picture of Christian love. Yeah, it's not hard right now to um, to find a person who's worse off. I mean, right? I mean, it just yes. this, the scenes are really extraordinary. Uh, just want to highlight uh, this paragraph um, that there are there is help coming from the outside. That is also you know the way that mm-hmm. we recognize uh, the way faith operates. We're not people who can save ourselves. Help help has to come from the outside. Mercy chefs are there. Samaritan's purse, the Southern Baptist mm-hmm. Conventions send relief. Um, that'll be on Convoy of Hope. Um, that will be ongoing mm-hmm. as well. Um, and these ministries are, you know, in addition to offering very, very tangible relief, you know, what people need right now, it's also, you know, an opportunity to uh, to share the gospel um, because mm-hmm. it, it's events like this that do serve as a genuine wake-up call for people who just haven't considered their need for God before. Yes, and there are gospel conversations happening all over Cedar Rapids as these people work alongside their neighbors, but also as those who aren't Christians see those faith-based organizations coming in to help. Um, it's Even if they don't have a gospel conversation with Samaritan's Purse, even to talk to their neighbors about like, wow, those guys came in to help us and they stayed a long time and look at what they gave us and why are they doing that? And so even if Samaritan's Purse itself or the, all those other Christian organizations aren't opening up those conversations themselves. They are at least opening up, certainly opening up the possibility for the Christians to have conversations with their own neighbors. Um, So that was really encouraging to me because you kind of think of relief organizations, they're doing great work. You absolutely want to do that, but then they leave and you wonder about the people they leave behind. So it's so encouraging to see the ripple effects of that, um, that, that these Cedar Rapids Christians will think will last for a long time. So you're um, the faith and work editor for the Gospel Coalition. So I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, mm-hmm. how is your work as a journalist an expression of your faith? Mm. Oh, what a good question. Um, so I started working, I, so I was trained as a journalist just to do sort of, you know, cover regular journalism things um, for any secular newspaper. And then I worked for Christianity Today for a long time. And then I came to work for the Gospel Coalition a couple years ago. And Colin Hansen, who's my editor, um, sort of invited who me to we love. who who we love. Who I do we too. Love. Everybody loves. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, invited me to rethink this a little bit and really think about journalism as like, what are we trying to convey? And in a world that is fallen and redeemed and living in the already not yet, like, what does that mean? So for me, particularly in this position, it means I am looking for stories of God's spirit at work in the world. So the stories I write aren't going to be normal headline stories at the Washington Post, but like, where is God at work in the world? Um, Where is his spirit moving? And can I tell those stories to encourage and instruct believers? So these stories that we just talked about, certainly God's spirit is at work there. But any story that I write is going to be a story that's off the beaten path a little bit, but I'm kind of trying to follow around the Holy Spirit and just um, see where he's doing a really interesting and good work and then write that down. All right. I just, um, beating a path, off the beaten path is a uh, is a good uh, <clears throat> that's a good tagline for you, um, <laughs> Sarah. Thank you for um, for what you do, but more importantly for how you do what you do. We really we really appreciate your effort. 
Uh, that is Sarah Ekoff Zalstra. You should find her. You can find her at thegospelcoalition.org. As you are seeking to curate your own news stream, um, she's going to be a journalist that is going to, you know, she's going to bring you the news, but she is going to bring you storylines from those uh, from those news headlines um, that are faith worthy and so worthy of your time. Um, and they're going to prepare you to have the conversations that people are having today and do so in ways that honor Jesus. So, Sarah, thank you so much um, for joining us today on Mornings with Carmen. Thank you so much for having me. We hope you'll come back. I really appreciate your voice. <laughs> thank you. Yep. All right. We've got another quick break before the end of the hour. We'll be right back. Okay, what are you reading today? Why are you reading what, are you, what you're reading today? And how is it both informing you and forming you? If you haven't yet been in the Word of God today, uh, get there. It's imperative that we be in the Word before we walk out into the world that God so loves. Why? Well, because the Word of God doesn't just inform us, it forms us, it transforms us, it renews our minds, it enables us to uh, apply the mind of Christ to the matters of the day. And so if we're not in the Word of God, then the Word of God is not in us. And then when the when the world squeezes us, which, by the way, it will, um, what comes out of us, if we've been in the Word and the Word is in us, then when the world squeezes us, what comes out of us is going to be the Word of God and the Spirit of God and consistent with God's character. If, on the other hand, we have not been in the Word of God, then what do you suppose is in us? What's in us? And what's going to come out of us when the world squeezes us? Which, by the way, it will. So, what are you full of? Let us go uh, be filled not only with the Holy Spirit, but with the very Word of God, that indeed what comes out of us when we're squeezed today are words of peace and truth and grace and mercy and love and the things of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. I'm forgetting one. And self-control. All right, I got to go refill up in Galatians. Uh, I'll be back with another hour of Mornings with Carmen. That's up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.